Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast, where we have uncomfortable conversations. We're going to be discussing domestic violence and sexually based offenses. I have a very special guest in the house. As usual, I like to give disclaimers. I'm your host, LP. We're going to be talking about some very heavy, 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 heavy stuff. And if you are triggered at any point during this podcast, which is going to be audio and video stream on all major platforms, definitely call 911. That's very important. That's your first source of contact for any emergency. We will have in the audio and video portion in the show notes, a number of resources, including domestic violence, sexual abuse hotlines, trafficking. We have Al-Anon, Narcotics Anonymous, as well as Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a new 911 number in the states that's going to be specifically used for mental health emergencies. That number is 988. It'll be nationwide July 16th of this year. It is available in some states. It's primarily used for suicide issues. They may expand that, but right now it is available in certain states. I'd like to welcome my guest, Mary Kim Farkas. She is a wonderful human being. Can't wait to talk to her. She's a mompreneur. She's an advocate. She's a global empowerment speaker. She's a writer, a multi-abuse champion. We're going to talk about that also. She is the chapter president of the Mom Link Million Dollar Club, a philanthropist, and she's the mother of a great special needs child, Mary Kim Farkas. What's going on, Queen? How are you doing? I'm doing amazing, Larry. Thank you again for the work that you do on this platform. It's so important for us to talk about, it, and I'm super excited to to share so we can stop, you know, break those stigmas and just, you know, not normalize the actual behavior, but normalize that other people have gone through this. So I appreciate you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, Mary Kim, we have really got a lot to cover. And I want to just jump right into it because I think the story that you have to tell about what happened to you and your family as a young person is crucial. And it moves the needle in terms of dialogue and solution-based results that I always talk about. I'm always that person that says, hey, we got to have a plan or plans, plural, of action to deal with the stigmas, the taboos, and the stereotypes associated not only with mental health, also with what happens in our families. And so we got this podcast titled, What Happens in the House Stays in the House. And that's for a reason. I want you to talk about your upbringing and how you became this advocate from a trauma-filled upbringing. The mic is yours. Great, uh, thank you. Oh, so where do I begin? Um, well, just a little background about me. I was born in the Bronx. I grew up in Florida. Um, I'm Italian-American mixed with Hungarian and Korean. So I'm 50% Korean, 25 Hungarian, and 25 Italian. And, you know, we were very, you know, Ro we were Roman Catholic, you know, we had to uh, go to church on Sundays. And if we did not go, 
my birth father was very adamant about sitting together and doing the rosary. And, you know, as a kid growing up, you're like, you know, it's like, like being forced to go to church. But, you know, I understand it because, you know, that upbringing and, you know, even when we weren't able to physically go to church, still like being prayerful and mindful of the presence of God. That's really what serves me today is my faith. I always, it's so weird that when I talk about this, I I remember back, you know, going to catechism school, I always questioned like the things that they were teaching. And this is before I was 12. And like, who's, who's saying this? How do they know that? Who wrote this? This thing was written up many, many years ago. How do you know that God said that? Like, I always questioned them. And I never asked the question. I was very shy. I didn't really speak. I was always like voted the quietest person in school. I'm so not quiet. <laughs> if you guys know me, you know that I'm a chatterbox now if you know me. But I was always voted quiet in school. But I always like was thinking like, this doesn't make sense. How do we know God really said that? This thing was written like how many decade years and decades, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, BC time, right? Um, with that said, faith was really like the premise of our household. We prayed before meals. We, we went to church. We went to catechism school. And that served me, like I said, served me all up to today. And I say all the time is that we, what happened in the household stays in the household. I don't remember as a kid growing up that those actual words were actually specified and honed in. But I was really taught in the, in the actions around the adults was, you know, we don't ask about other people's family life. We don't butt in. We don't share what happens here. And it was kind of just this unknown or like untalked about fact, you know, that I received from the household. Um, I uh, just a little quick background. So I lost both my parents at the age of 12. I woke up one morning babysitting the neighbor's kids and I found out later that day that my mother gained her wings and my dad gained handcuffs. Okay. And there's multiple layers to this. My dad was uh, uh, honorably discharged Vietnam vet. He served during the Korean War and that's how my mom and dad met. Um, growing up, my mom, you know, she couldn't help us with our homework, but she was at the table with us, the kitchen at table, teaching herself English. My mom learned to cook, how to make Italian food, Korean food. Like my mom was like the muse of all muses. Like she was like, I don't even know how she did it. She had three kids. My dad was severely hurt in the service and that's why he was honorably discharged. Um, and with that came a lot, it came with seizures. I remember my dad just always having like a, a chest or drawer of cabinet of medicines. Um, that's what how I knew my dad. And um, I mean, thank God he lived, you know, because I wouldn't be here. Right. Um, but my mom had to take care of my dad. He, she taught us, like, if your dad, you know, is driving, she didn't want him to drive with the kids by her himself. But she gave us the tools. Like if your dad starts to, like, get a seizure, do X, Y and Z. And so I grew up with that, not knowing that it was part of a mental health situation because he wasn't totally functioning in his mind without the medicine and with the medicine and that i believe um actually ended my mother's life just because of the inability to function fully he was always a family guy always wanted to help others always taking pictures and i learned from that that he you know lived in the moment he trusted people 
And, you know, we've all been around scenarios where people who are, you know, not 100%, not that we're all 100%, but in the lack of what people perceive you as, like fully functioning, you know, um, straightforward, people in this world take advantage of people who are not 100%. So I can say, like, you know, my son with Down syndrome. So anyone who has a disability or is not perceived as fully functioning in whatever matter that is. And so he was taken advantage of from a lot of people around him. My mom tried to protect me. So there's like layers and layers of that. And just to talk about domestic violence, Larry, it's so, I grew up in two different households and both households, my birth parents and the guardian parents, which I called parents, we lived together for 30 something years. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of arguing. And I just grew up thinking like, oh yes, my parents fought. You know, they had moments where they fought. And not until recently when I was on uh, our friend's A-Star podcast that I realized right before, like we did a pre-production thing, I realized in that moment that it wasn't just fighting. When you pull out guns, when you start on battling on top of each other on the floor, when you start choking people, you start hitting people, that's domestic violence. That's right. just not parents fighting or disagreeing. And not that they explained that this is what happened. Oh, we just fought. It was just something, it was normal in our, in our growing up as a child. And um, so it's just, it, it's so bizarre because I did before I was age of 12 was uh, sexually abused by an uncle who come over all during all the different holidays and events. Cause our house was the house that everyone went to um, for every holiday, every celebration. Um, and that's when it happened. And I don't really know the time frame of that, uh, but I know it happened for like at least a year or two. And then when my mother passed, you know, we kind of like the, we didn't see our, our birth family much after that. And he was an older uncle and he eventually passed. So I never like got to, ask for forgiveness or have any conversation around that with him. But I knew at that age before 12, that that was wrong. You know, we were taught, you know, in school, we were taught in the family, like no one touches you, you know, you know, is anyone touching you? And even when my mother asked me is so-and-so, you know, being inappropriate. And I said, no, even though I knew that he was, even though I knew that was wrong, but you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, I was actually going through a transformation of finding myself again. I lost myself um, along this adult journey of transforming who I was, not having my dreams anymore, not going after my dreams, but just wanting this person that I was with to just love me again. And through that journey, I uncovered that I lost who I was and I was trying to find myself. And that is when I realized how long the abuse has really happened and the effects of that abuse. Meaning during that transition period, I realized that I was counting on the, my partner. We were engaged. Um, after I left, I realized that I was counting on this person to make me feel complete, to fill up the abandonment holes in my soul from you know, birth parents being separate, you know, being born at the same age of 12, moving into unfamiliar family friends and the dynamics of moving in with a new family and the abuse. And so I didn't know that I was actually making decisions in my life that I was requiring another person 
to make me feel complete, to bring happiness, to make me feel whole. At the end of the day, I, I, I worked on myself and I realized it's our job. It's my job to fill that emptiness up, to fill up those empty holes in my soul. It's not someone else's responsibility. Even if I was okay with my uncle abusing me, I'm not saying that I agreed with it, but I am a class case middle child syndrome person and I like the attention. I was like, you know, my brother was, and he still is super gifted. And my sister was three years younger, so she was the cute one. Not that I was, but I was a class case, middle child syndrome. And I enjoyed the, the attention. And so that's probably why one that I didn't share with my mom that yes, so-and-so was doing this thing. And two, I didn't want him to get in trouble, you know, um, because I knew it was wrong, but also I was allowing him to do it. And the odd thing is, they're like, you know, kids, we don't know so much. We know a little bit. Um, I had a family friend come over and he was over. And so I asked her like, oh, cause it was, I was enjoying it. Right. And I know it's like an odd thing to say. So I invited this friend to, you know, like, oh, I'm having fun. Why don't you come? Right. Um, so I had to, through that process, uh, Larry, I had to also forgive myself for that. Forgive myself for allowing these things to happen. Um, and so that was a journey and I had to forgive him, you know, because I, from my research, you know, most abusers, they were abused. Right. You know, we were not born or created out of um, hate or um, behavior that doesn't serve us well, right? Those are all taught things. And so through that journey of me finding myself, I realized that, you know, they're at the most part, most adults are doing the best that they can in that moment. Even my parents, you know, there's no rule book, you know, we're not perfect. And so just the, this, just the gift that, you know, anyone who's going through anything, the gift that you can give yourself is forgiveness, forgiving that person. It doesn't mean that you agree with it. It doesn't mean that you were okay with it, but forgive them because at the end of the day, it's about you. You can move forward so well with forgiveness. And if you in those moments and you allow things to happen, forgive yourself because we all go through these, you know, as humans, we evolve. And I think it's part of our journey. We have to evolve to become who we're made to be. If I'm the same person I was when I was 20, I'm 50 years old. I didn't grow in 30 years. So we have to be open to changing and, you know, our experiences I say these on these different platforms, like in Clubhouse, and I have these resiliency rooms that one, never compare yourself, your journey to someone else's. Even if you think so-and-so um, had a tougher time and you shouldn't feel all this these things that you're feeling because yours is less than. It is not, do not compare. We all have our own journey, but along that journey, even the, you know, through all the abuse, through all the things that I expected these adults in my life to act and be that I was expecting under my definition as a child, you know, even before I was 12, I always questioned like, that doesn't make sense. And I literally had a list, you know, I got in trouble for X, Y, and Z. When I become a parent, this is how I'm going to do it. Right. Literally like a handwritten list. Like, what do I know? Right. You know, but these are things that, you know, we do as kids, right. We think we know everything that they don't know everything and just, through the bad, there's always a lesson. So there's a journey that you go through 
and that's where I just want to sh- talk about champion um, is that, you know, um, we go through these adversities of life because there are lessons, not only for you to receive, but for you to share with others, because not everybody has the agility, has the strength, has the re- resiliency, or has the know how to get out of their current situation, you know, an abusive situation, a traumatic situation. And sometimes we come across these people and, you know, they reach out to you because maybe they know, or you can tell that they've gone through something. Part of our journey is to give them those gifts of knowledge. Like, listen, I'm here for you. I understand. This is what helped me. Like humanity, that's what we're supposed to do. In my opinion, in this world is to give back and lead with the things that, you know, you want most in this life. And, you know, I did not, so talk about um, multi-abuse champion. So I recently, it was probably, I just had my one year anniversary on Clubhouse. So it was probably about a year ago, right, average, where I was in one of these Clubhouse spaces and I was on stage, just listening in, waiting my turn. And I was checking out people's bios. And so I go to my friend, Kiki Boyd's, um, she's my friend now. We host these, these resiliency recovery rooms today. And I looked in her bio and it said domestic violence champion. I was like, what? You know what? And I want to ask you a question because I have these conversations with pretty much everybody that I talk with who comes on the show. I know Mrs. LP told me that you never use the word victim except for two circumstances. Mm. One, the person is dead. Two, you're talking about the crime or crimes itself. Now, I've had people say the standard word is survivor. Yes. Most people are good with that. However, yes. I've interviewed some people and they like, you know what? I don't like survivor. Uh, and I'm like, what well, say you? And they say, champion, like what you said. And I'm yes. like, really? Why? And they'll go into a whole thing about why. I've had other interviews where they're like, I don't like survivor. I don't like champion. What say you? I like triumphant. Why? Mm, right. Go into it. Another interview, same question, different answer. I don't like champion. I don't like survivor. I don't like triumphant. Like, what say you? Overcomer. Another interview. They didn't like any of those. I said, well, what say you? They said, I like victor or victorious. And on and on and on. I I actually had a woman that I interviewed. This was a pre-interview. Same conversation. She said, I am a victim. And she started to go into why she considered herself a victim. I was like, time out, please. Hold on. Stop. Because she was on the roll. I was like, hold on, because you're throwing me off now. This <laughs> 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 LP has me trained well. She was like, no, you don't. And she started laughing. And I said, no, I'm serious. Like, and, and she said, here's why. And she laid it all out. And she said, I was victimized. I know I've overcome all this stuff. I know I've triumphed. I'm triumphing over all this stuff. I know I've 
you know, all of these things that other people have said, it doesn't take away the crime that was committed. Right. And I don't let that word take my power away from me. I use it as an empowerment because it is what it is. Mm. If that trauma had not happened, you wouldn't be talking to me right now in this capacity. Sure. I'm a victim. Just like when you look at like Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Yeah. You know, they've they've been in what 23 seasons. They've never changed the name of the show, but you've heard them change the verbiage. Right. The the, the words that they use, some of the titles, some of the slang that was used in earlier seasons, you don't hear it at all anymore. So I'm always just so curious to hear everybody's thought about champion, victim, survivor, overcomer, all of these things. And I got a log of all of them. <laughs> I'm writing them down. Multi-abuse yeah. champion. Yes, I love that. You know, you know, I guess it's, it's what empowers them to continue forward, right? Yes. And I'm glad that she shared with you that she doesn't act act like a victim but mm -hmm. her victim you know state that she was in made her victorious i know i've heard that around and so that's her power that's what empowers her so i think everyone's reasoning is different so i love that you asked that question um so for me when i clicked on her profile domestic violence champion i was like oh my gosh that is it and like not that i totally subscribe to survivor because that is the norm but sure. I didn't know another word. I didn't like create another word. I didn't think another word. Like it, that was just what it was. And so when I saw champion, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. I've never heard it before. And the first thing I thought of Larry was for me, when I think of a champion, I think of a boxer and they want to win that big belt, that whatever, how big it is, a big belt. And, you know, watching these, you know, you know, people train and watching Rocky growing up, you know, um, you know, they go through a transformation. They go through a, a mental state, a physical, a spiritual uh, food, like every aspect of their being goes through this transformation because at the end of the day, they want to be the champion. They want to be right. the winner and they want to win that belt. And so immediate when I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that encompasses this journey of you know being abused and you know your process through that abuse you know for me it was just writing i i journaled my entire life not knowing up until probably a few years ago that that journaling journaling and writing down whatever i was thinking actually probably saved a lot of time for me of just getting the feelings and thoughts out of my head onto a safe space which for me was a piece of paper that you know no one judged it no one criticized no one told me that i was wrong for feeling x y and z and so i think that so that process so journaling going to therapy um dealing with whatever stuff that you the harmness that you may have received from being abused or in a traumatic situation the after effects the PS pstd post-traumatic stress disorder all those things it takes a lot of guts energy time it, it's hard, hard work. It's sometimes years and decades long of work, of reworking. And so the work is never completely done because 
you can have triggers. You could have moments where you think about those things and bring out, you know, like you said, the, the triggering, you know, from people listening to this podcast, right? And that's okay. Like, you got to live in the, like, I believe for me, it's always served me well. Like, if I'm feeling very angry or very upset and I want to cry, it, unless I'm not in a, in a work environment or a place where I cannot release it, I now give myself grace and release those feelings because otherwise they get bottled up inside they're not released and they don't process well in my system and there's a lot of health benefits that can go awry from stress and holding in things and so i know people larry that have gone through situations like mine who have never shared it to anyone and i'm not saying that they should or shouldn't but there's a there's a different move in their spirit i want to say what they um choose to share in regards to like i think it holds up basically along at the end of the day i think if you're not processing those traumatic hard things you don't become fully who you're supposed to be because you're not in my opinion you're not fully living in the truth and i think once you really take that hard look look with that hard work about your truth of life then can, you can really truly receive all the gifts of all of those things, all the negative, all the positive, all the in-betweens that you're supposed to get. And that is your gift. That's part of your purpose. Like those gifts, those lessons are part of who you are because you were supposed to go through them. I don't think, I really believe that all these things are things that we're supposed to experience to be who we're supposed to be. And so I will always credit my friend Kiki Boyd about the word champion because I understood at that moment that I was working like a champion muscle muscling through the journey you know for years not looking at it you know just picking up life and life went on and just dealing with things when it came but then you know in my late 20s early 30s I had to take a hard look because I'd lost who I was and that's where I discovered you know about all about self-empowerment and it just it just really capitalized on that journey and survivor when i look back now and this is probably what i probably was thinking but could not articulate in the past before learning about champion is that a survivor for me i had no power in it i had no say in my power as a survivor someone else allowed me to survive so i was just being stomped on i had no say in it I had no way of getting out of it. And this was what someone did to me. And I'm supposed to own that and become that person versus transforming into a champion. What made you finally make that transition from victim to survivor? Like what, do you remember like the day, like what was going on? Like what made Mary Kim say enough? There's two times that I think uh, I've learned through my life. So one was, you know, after my mother, you know, gained her wings. Uh, what I learned through that with the adults around is that life continued on. You know, I don't remember anyone asking me, you know, how are you feeling? Can we talk about this? What do you think about this? You know, it was, you know, 
the time that I grew up too, you know, the, the children, kids had their own table. You cannot talk when the adults are talking. You know, you can't sit at the adult table, like all those dynamics, right, of adult versus child. And we didn't have those discussions. But what I picked up is that, you know, even through a tragedy, a death, losing your mom at the age of 12, that you still have to go to school. Holidays are still going to come. Birthdays, celebrations, vacations, and you have to do those things. That is part of life. And so that was a great gift, you know, for my parents to give me is that, you know, life went on, life goes on and adversities that, you know, sometimes we know someone's sick and you know, something's going to happen, but the reality is life is just lives in seconds because it really takes one second where your life can shift. And so I used, that was my tool from that moment on. And just, I did that throughout my twenties, thirties. And the second moment that shifted me, uh, Larry was, leaving that 10 year relationship that I probably was in for four years too long. During that four years, I just did everything that I could think of to bring back that connection um, that we had for the six years prior to that, six plus years prior to that. And, you know, changing who I was, doing things that I didn't do before and it did not work. And I was tossed for many reasons. One, I did not, I had an on and off relationship with my guardian's parents at that time. Okay. Um, during this time, also, my brother was literally dumped at my doorstep after being diagnosed with multiple uh, mental illnesses because uh, my parents did not want to, did not care to undertake that, that job, let's say. And because he was my brother, they just said, here, he's yours. So I was dealing with that, managing that and all this stuff. And then this, this relationship fell apart, you know? Um, and I was trying to just get that back. Like I needed that back and, you know, to feel that love again, to feel that connection. And I debated for a long time. One, cause I was like, I can make this work. You know, we had this, like, how can you love someone for so much and for all these years and all of a sudden not love me? I didn't understand that. I mean, I met him when I was 19, so I was really, I was young and I left when I was 30, but I also had a really close relationship with his family. Like his family was my family. We lived together for a period of time and we were just not, we weren't married on paper, but lack of a better word, we were married. All, everything was intertwined. And so I think through it all that leaving that the family unit was an added layer of me to let go of. And I can't tell you how it happened, but literally, you know, when you, for me, whenever I'm going through these big life altering decisions that I have to make a big choice, that's going to shift my life one way or the other. I just, I constantly think about it. I, I, I stew over things. I write about it. And there's literally one day, Larry, that I wake up and it's like a light bulb moment. It's like, this is the decision. There's no more debate. There's no more questioning. Should I, shouldn't I, let me try this. Let me do this. And it literally just said like, okay, this is the decision. It just really just comes to me. I just kind of like, especially those really big, big moments. So that is really how it happens for me. And that's what happened. 
And during that time period is when I, I had to look at myself and did all the transformational work and the inner work and um, finding myself again. And that was my, um, I left when I was 30 and it was probably about 33 to 35 is when this transformation started. We're going to get into that. This is the Trigger Warning Talk podcast that you're listening to. We are going to be streaming this podcast, audio and video across all major platforms, even Audible now. I just found out we're on Audible, so that's awesome. So definitely check us out. If you are triggered at any point during this podcast, please call 911. We have resources that will be listed in the show notes also. So the suicide issues, any domestic violence issues, trafficking, sexually based offenses, anything that you are triggered by during this conversation, we have a number for you that's listed in the resources section of the show notes. We're talking with Mary Kim Farkas, the shoe mompreneur. <laughs> Her shoe game is on point. Don't even play. You know, she's serious about it. She says she picks out shoes before she picks the outfit. That's how she gets the outfit. <laughs> she is a mompreneur, global empowerment speaker, a writer, a multi-abuse champion. She's the chapter president of the MomLink Million Dollar Club, and she's a philanthropist. I want you to talk to us about your post-trauma care. What did you do to get therapy, and how did you go about it, and what was that like for you? Uh, I really didn't go to therapy until, um, I want to say probably my early thirties is when I first started going to therapy. Um, one, um, I, uh, you know, back then our parents, I don't even know if, if insurance was a thing for our kids back then. I don't remember having insurance, you know, outside of my birth parents. I knew that we did have insurance because my dad was a, a vet. Right. Um, so when I started in the workforce, I actually started when I was 19. I went to, you know, back in the day, you can go to a business school, get an associate and get a good job, good paying right. job. And so my purpose after leaving high school was like, I just want to work. And so I went to an 18 month program. I started like two weeks after I graduated high school and I graduated at 19. I literally got a job like a week later I started. And so I started my career at 19 years old. And so with that, that's when I learned, you know, like, you know, saving for the future, 401k plans and insurance and all that. So I didn't really have the resources before that. And during that time, um, at 19, I was just trying to learn the industry, like, you know, move up in the company. I, I didn't care what job they gave me. Like I wanted to do it all. And so I was really focused on my career at that time and moving out of my parents' house. And so there was no other thought in my head about therapy or anything. I just was like, just a working woman now. Like I was super excited to get work in the city and I'm like getting this big position and learning and growing. And so I did not seek out therapy until it was after I left that relationship at the age of 30. So that's why I always, when I look back now, I really believe that my writing, um, uh, addiction, I want to say, because I write still till today, like literally I have boxes of, I have not thrown anything out. I have boxes of spiral notebooks, um, post-it notes, napkins of me writing 
So I really like give all my credit to not only um, my journaling, I also give credit to my faith. And I also give credit because in my 20s, I learned about gratitude. And I went on this gratitude journey in my 20s. I want to say probably mid 20s before I even broke up with my fiance at that time. And I also think that has helped me because today at 49, even when, you know, there are dark days or different adversities or even through the journey with my son that I can see that there's hope even when it's really dark, I can see the little light. I don't care if it's a pinhole and I can, you know, take the moment and not that I'm switching it around or, you know, um, not being in the moment of that situation, but I can see the light. I can see the gift. I can see, you know, like, well, it's better than X, Y, and Z and be positive about whatever situation. And I, those are the things that help me really. When we talk about therapy, I know for me, it was something that I've done historically in my past, be it couples counseling, individual counseling, family counseling, different things like that for different reasons. And so when you went to therapy, what was your focus and what was your therapist's focus from a healing aspect? What was the plan or plans of actions that you all came up with that you were putting into effect today? Yeah, Um, it was a um, the therapist that I went to, she let me lead and just share whatever that I wanted on my heart um, and talk about. A lot of the therapy that I, I did get was not based about around my child abuse or the abandonment because I wasn't really it wasn't a focus of mine. I don't even know why. I really didn't speak about that though, during that time. I never told anyone until recently, probably in the last year, about my story. So I, I wasn't, you know, I guess I was one of those that didn't talk about it that I'm like, well, people should talk about it. Now that I'm talking out loud, I did not. I did not share that information with anybody. I did talk about, you know, like, my parents what happened with that like the cliff note version but i've never shared the the abuse aspect so the topic of conversation was really about my brother's mental health and that journey because he was self-medicating um i was the, the primary and then i talked about my job like the adversities of you know my work i i really now that i'm thinking about it i didn't talk about it but i didn't talk about it at all I guess I wasn't a champion then because <laughs> I was just, well, you know, I didn't, didn't, I don't even know no, why. I just, yeah, I didn't. To, to me, that's interesting. And the reason I asked that is because everybody that I've, that I've talked to pre-interview and the actual interview, when I asked them about therapy, just like the survivor question, they get different answers. And I'm actually shocking myself. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I don't I haven't talked to anybody that, that has said for their answer. They didn't talk about that in therapy. So that's interesting to me. Now, for you, does that work for you? Yeah. Like, as I was saying it, Larry, I'm like, 
I'm shocked, but I don't remember. I, I never had that conversation with them. And then I guess it did work for me. Meaning that I think I've done, I did the work of what is it's really putting everything out. And so everything was talked out loud on a piece of paper. So when I look back, I did that work. I also did the work of really owning my responsibility of that journey. Also forgiving, when I learned about forgiveness, I forgave these people, all the adults that, you know, I felt that didn't serve me well for whatever reason, however small or big. Um, I, and I think that was the therapy. If I look back today is being able to be given those tools. I, I was a big, and I still am a big like self-help person. And I would go to these, all these workshops and conferences all about self-help and like how to grow yourself. And I think it was all of that information. I mean, that's where I learned about forgiveness. That's where I learned about gratitude. That's where I learned about journaling. And I just took that um, upon myself. And I think when I look back, it's something funny that people, you know, one thing, one of my girlfriends has shared with me back in my early 20s, she's like, Mary, why do you always show up like you're in a fight that you have your dukes up ready to fight? I'm like, what are you talking about? I do not. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like that is not me. And when I went through that journey of finding myself again, she was a thousand percent right. I always, you know, felt that I had was the only one to defend myself. It was my responsibility to stick up for myself. And that came from feeling abandoned as a child. And so I share that because I think that's where I kind of sought out for myself, like, okay, well, I don't know where to go from this. You know, we didn't talk about self-help, you know, in our house, around people around me. And I got these conferences. And so I leaned into that. I leaned into these self-help books where people like overcome X, Y, and Z. I'm a big uh, person who reads like true stories. So that's nonfiction, right? True, true. It's nonfiction books. Like what were people's journeys? You know, these documentaries. And I just like always constantly fill my mind with that. And I think that was part of my therapy. And I felt too that because I didn't have this open trust mindset of trusting people based on my history of people that did not serve me well, whether they did it on purpose or not, that's how I received it. I only trusted myself. And so I think that's where I made those decisions. If I'm looking back today of why I didn't really seek it out anywhere else, that it was my piece of paper. It was going to these conferences, reading these books, watching these documentaries about how people overcame things in their life. And I think that's, that was my therapy without knowing that that's my therapy. For you, I don't know, I'm trying to make sense of it today. No, that, that makes total sense. And everybody works differently. Like what works for you may not work for the next person. Everybody has a different answer so far that I've asked that particular question to. And I thank you for sharing it because I want people to understand that we're not monolithic. Nothing that works for you or something that works for you may not work for me. True. When we talk about therapy, there's all kind of therapy, even what is termed alternative therapy, Reiki yes. practices and yoga, and metaphysics and hypnotherapy, all of these different things. And I've interviewed people that 
or practitioners in those particular fields. And it's wonderful, the conversations that I've had with them about how their clients have really benefited and are benefiting from the non-traditional laying on the couch Q&A or cognitive behavior therapy or EMDR, which is phenomenal, especially for therapy, uh, for traumas, uh, especially the ones that we're talking about, EMDR is phenomenal. And if you haven't heard of EMDR, Google it, look it up. If you have a therapist or looking for one, make sure that they specialize in that because you want somebody that's totally qualified to help you with that particular therapy. I want to focus on you being an advocate real quick. How do you advocate and who do you advocate to when it comes to domestic violence and sexually-based offenses? I advocate on, on those topics by sharing my story. It's something, um, what started out, you know, when I lost my mom, you know, I was 12. And so she was no longer here, even though my, my dad went to prison for a few years, my dad was still alive. And somewhere in my 20s, I, you know, it's a bizarre story. Um, I found where my father lived because one of my best friends literally got his file on her desk. And obviously she's known me most of our lives. And she called me up at work and said, you know, is this your dad? And of course I, I couldn't say anything because she'll get in trouble for sharing information. And I was going to Florida in a few weeks and I was like, oh my gosh, you got to write that information. You know, I took the information. And so I was going through that journey with my brother at that time. And I took the information and I knocked on that house and you know, it's a small town and I guess because I probably looked a lot younger because I still look young today. So like back in my twenties, I probably looked like a kid. Right. And you know, I knocked on the door like, Oh, do you know so-and-so I'm looking for my dad? She's like, no, he doesn't live here. This is where he lives. And she gave me his address. <laughs> and so I went there and I found him. And still so, reason why I say that is that I didn't really have this same journey with my dad, even though he was not in my life because he was still alive. Okay. So I, I, in my head, I think I had that time, but my mom's life, all I knew is what I knew about her from the age of, you know, up to age 12, that perception. And so my, my first idea of becoming an advocate or an author, because I think if you're telling your story or anyone's story, you're really an advocate for that story. So the first time I came up with, like, I want to tell my mom's story and then through life, you know, that story has evolved and other stories of my life have come in. So there's like, there's layers. And so an advocate today about, you know, multi-abuse champion, mental health, um, domestic violence. I've never experienced that physically. I mean, we were back in the day, you can get hit by your parents, you know, grab the belt or grab the stick outside. Like, not that it was normal, but it was, it was normal in my life. It was normal in my neighborhood, yeah. 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 And, and so I didn't really feel like not that that's not domestic violence. Right. But right. I never was in a situation with a, with an adult where I experienced domestic violence physically, but I witnessed it my whole childhood. And so today I share my story and that's how I advocate for all of those things because of all the stigmas, 
because people are unaware, because they're, they're, they're taught or not taught what is the reality, you know, versus what the, the fiction aspect of it is or the, like, you can't control or they're this type of people. And I think if we start sharing our stories and saying to the world, basically, like, this is not appropriate. These are all learned behaviors. This is the truth about mental illness. This is the truth of how these things can occur. And these are the solutions. But until we're all open and wanting to talk about these things, then the shame goes away. Then the, the openness that other people feel that they can talk about it without being judged. People want to be seen, but a lot of us have grew up in these environments where, you know, you were judged for, you know, having a feeling. You were said that, you know, you can't cry if you're a man. If you're a woman, you can't do this. And like, we're all humans. We can do all those things. Sure. Your person, your creator made us with these feelings and these thoughts because they're ours to own. And so that's where I, you know, it, it was actually been from Clubhouse, you know, just, and there's a period of my time during when I joined on Clubhouse and entered these different rooms that I said, well, this is the platform. And that's how I met Kiki and we hooked up together to do those resiliency and recovery rooms. But that's where I leaned into the advocacy. And that's, you know, part of my first uh, transformational book is coming out. I'm going to try to get out for, by June, but if not, it's going to be released in July. Um, and I tell the story that me, that propelled me to who I am today. So it's one aspect of my story, but that's how I advocate. It's just by sharing because, you know, and I don't mean to take up too much space, but I recently, oh, thank you, Larry, um, was I got to talk at a high school back in March. It was the last day of Women Empowerment Month or Women History Month. And it was in a, um, an inner city school in New York City. So I knew going in, you know, I'm going to have a diversity of kids there. And I know the attitude that my class in high school had. And we did not experience the pandemic. We didn't have social media. So I know there are layers of, you know, like, who's this person? Like, I, I just want to, I want, I'm here for the free pizza. Like, just get me back to class, whatever, right? So these kids, they're, kids, they're not kids, they're young adults, right? So they were in this program. They, they earned to get there because they don't have to eat the school lunch that day. Every week they get into meet other people. They just learn and grow in different ways. And so it turned out like we each had, there was three speakers. We each had like 30 minutes at the end of the day, once we got settled and this kid had to leave and all this other stuff, we literally had like 10, 15 minutes. And so, you know, I'm wearing my heels. I'm all dressed up like I'm in a work thing, right? So, and the perception I knew that all like leaning in, like, like this, like rolling their eyes, right? And so I'm like, we only had a few minutes. I gave them a cliff note version and literally mostly more than half just stood up like leaned in, stood up and was listening. There were girls in the, in the, it was, it was mainly, I would say probably about 80% female, 20% male. Okay. I saw three girls wipe tears like this, you know, like don't see me. And the guy, some of the guys were like, what? They were just shocked. And it was just more about not sharing my story because there was only cliff note versions, but like my, how I muscled through as best I could in that short period of time. And so after there was two other speakers after me, and then so the, we were waiting for all the kids to go back to their classrooms. And so we were just going to hang out with the people who, who, who created the space. And so during that time, five girls 
came up to me and said, can we speak to you? They're like, we can't believe that, you know, oh, you look so pretty. You look like you're, we don't, you would never know that you've gone through this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, you, you shared so much. We understand. And three of the five girls said that they are in a relationship that they have been unhappy in and they don't know how to leave. They have, and then one of them shared on top of that, she goes, I don't have any friends. I can't talk to anybody. I don't know what to do. And she, they were literally crying. And I said, first of all, you five, whether you're friends or not, you need to be friends right now and lean on each other. And I, I just gave them just other little tips. And I said, please follow me, reach out to me. I will be there for you and try to support you. And recently it was a couple weeks ago i got to work again with the same program and i was hoping these girls would be there and they were and so i did share my social platform with them they're like i said i'm so glad you guys are here you know you know they were like hoping that i was going to be there and vice versa so i share that because our kids are going through the same stuff that some of us have experienced as adults i'm gonna be 49 i graduated in 1990 and we have kids today, you did too? Yeah. So like, we have kids the same, going through the same thing, feeling that they're alone. And it's, it's it was just, not that I I didn't know that it was existing, that our, our youth are experiencing these same things, but to see their faces, to see them struggling and have the, the bravery to say something, like we gotta do our job. <laughs> You're right. You are absolutely right. And I thank you for having the willingness to go into that classroom, into that school and share your story. We need more people like yourself to be courageous and have the strength and the wisdom to talk about these things. And it's not about a trauma dump or a bitch fest. It's about, you know what, here's my story because maybe it'll either help you open your mouth and say something to stop the trauma. Maybe it'll give you the courage to say, you know what, I know something is going on in somebody else's life and I want to help be an advocate for them. Even if it's somebody younger or their same age or older, it could be a family exactly. member, it could be a friend, it could be a, a total stranger, a classmate. Right. It also possibly can save somebody's life. Right. All across you know, the spectrum. Exactly. I agree. And, you know, I like that you said tra trauma dumping. My opinion, if you're trauma dumping, I don't, my experience of being around people who trauma dump, it's not coming from a healed space. That's right. Right. So if you're sharing your story, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get emotional and cry when you're sharing your story, but you can still be in that feeling, but not trauma dumping because then that, I think for me, when I'm in that space and someone does that, it doesn't empower me. It doesn't motivate me. It doesn't make me want to share my story. And I get it all the time. I, I get it, Mary Kim, I get it all <laughs> the time, especially when I go in places like Clubhouse, when we're talking about like active violent incidents and stuff or whatever. I just pull back a lot of times because I get invited in these spaces to have these conversations. But again, I'm the trigger one to talk guy. 
I'm the guy that says, let's not do the iceberg conversations. I don't want to talk about the 10%. I want to talk about the 90% that's under the water, that's murky and the abyss that we're all the pain, the shame, the judgment, the guilt, the trauma, the ugliness, all of that stuff lies under the water. Hey, I got a bunch of scuba gear. Come on, let's talk about these things. Let's go seek help. Seek help. Right. And if we're just going to talk, and trauma dump. I got a famous saying: I'd rather sit on the couch, binge watching Netflix, and picking the lint out of my belly button, than get involved <laughs> in some of these trauma dump conversations because they lead nowhere. They right. don't help. They don't do anything. It is a waste of time. Where is the plans of action? Right. What are we doing? What are we going to do to resolve it? To mend the fence? To get past it? to get through it what are we going to what do? are the gifts and the lessons right of that you have to talk on that to my opinion to change that mindset to empower the youth or your peer or your co-worker because they're not going to feel comfortable or safe to share probably the, some of the most traumatic situations in their life probably they'll ever experience that comes with a buttload of shame a buttload of like well you should not have done this it's your fault like all these layers of things if you're trauma dumping and not coming of a place like listen i'm sharing so i can be there for you i'm sharing because i've done x y and z and maybe some of these things will help you we are not given in those tools so you can't help another person by just throwing crap at them no. with no solution of how did you get there? I want to ask you one more question before we go to our shameless plug wrap up <laughs> portion. Okay. You got a lot of stuff going on, which is phenomenal. Your question is if you could write a letter or an email to your younger self, what would you say? Ooh, um, to my inner self, I would say I'm going to share the thing that I wish I knew how to be during um, some trial times in my life. Take the moment when you are. It's, I guess it's not letter form, but. Um, never forget your dreams never forget your worth never forget your value you don't need anyone's approval because god gave you your approval when he made you and i'm getting teary i um Write down today when you are in a healthy mind, in a healthy setting, in a healthy situation, all the things that you love about you. Laminate it and read it every day. Every day. Every day. I want to throw another question in because (laughs) I want to talk to you from a male perspective, me giving you a male perspective, and I want your response to that. Okay. 
we know that young men and whoever has a problem with me talking boys and girls email me you can whatever gender you want to call yourself whatever i'm just talking about boys right now if you identify as a boy right if you identify as a boy right now so boys get traumatized sexually also we know that it's one of those things that we suppress just like every other emotion that we're taught to suppress especially when it comes to sexual trauma not as much domestic violence in terms of just physically beating and all this stuff or whatever i'm talking about sexual trauma sexually based offenses as an advocate have you had a chance to talk to any young boys or young men about these sexual traumas? And if you have, what are some of the things that you say to them? Or is it any different than what you would say to anybody, no matter what the gender is? I have, I mean, the place that I was able to talk to young adults, boys, right, who identify as boys, is in that high school classroom. Um, because it was about 20% boys and 80% girls. And I don't know their story, but I know that they all have a story. I know they all have an experience. And I'm not trying to stereotype, but most inner city kids have an experience of adversity in, in their youth. And so with that presumption, that there's a higher percentage of the majority of them having an adversity that they've already experienced. I'm sure a handful of boys may have experienced that. And so I would share the same thing because I believe that it doesn't matter, you know, if you identify as a boy or a girl, if I'm sharing my abuse story and my um, tools of how I got to where I am today and what I still utilize today, like you shared earlier, Larry, everyone has their own set of tools their own journey of their tools that they have gone through to become on the other side let's say a champion or a warrior you know a victor like whatever they use to empower them and i don't think it matters if you identify as a boy or a girl it's still the experience but you're absolutely right there's so much more stigma on men in abusive relationships either you know as a child in a sexual relation, in a sexual abuse situation, and even in a domestic violence situation where the female is the aggressor. There's even a zillion more layers of stigma. And I actually had a a guy that I dated that um, I reconnected with a few years ago and he was telling me his experience that the lady after me, I don't think she was a lady now that I'm saying that, she was domestic, like abusing him and the shame and the guilt and all these things that came with it. And he didn't share that with anyone. And so there's a bigger stigma with men, boys, anyone who identifies as a he, right? In that realm of any abuse, more so than females, I believe outside of, um, well, I guess even if you're talking about rape cases, because you hear on all these stands too that you know they blame the oh you shouldn't have you shouldn't have drank you shouldn't have worn that skirt when a when a man says he was raped either by a woman because women have raped men also 
it's like, oh, aren't you man enough? Like all these things. So there's layers. And I think Absolutely. men need to share their story too. Oh, I'm trust me, I got them already because lined I, up. Great. I got them already lined up. I'm telling you, the men that I'm going to be bringing on and some of the women who are professionals that deal with sexual trauma in people that identify as male, it's going to be phenomenal. I'm telling you, like, I can't wait to have them tell their stories. Yes. Um, and even more how it, how those traumas result in a person being suicidal. Yeah. How they choose to use substance abuse. How they, how sometimes they choose to victimize other people. Yes. You know, how they choose to do some of these active violent incidents. You know, it's so many levels, as you said, Mary Kim, like we just, again, that ice, that's why, that's why we can't do the iceberg conversations. I'm sick of that shit. I'm telling you, it makes me literally ill every damn time. Let's flip that iceberg upside down. Like I said, I got the scuba gear. You know, you you want to snorkel. Like, what do you want to do? Because we're about to go under the water. Right. We got to. Especially that we know better. The people that know better. It's our responsibility. I'm sorry, we had to do, yeah, it's our responsibility to do our thing that we're supposed to do because it has to stop. And only way that we stop is we stop the stigma and we talk about it. No more of the, like, scuba diving, you know? We all got to just get our our gear. (laughs) Got to go ahead. Shameless plug time. How can people get in touch with you? Because you're on Clubhouse. You know, you're this chapter president. Can you tell us about these things, this, uh, the global empowerment speaking and the philanthropy, like just throw it all out there. You guys can all find me on my digital card. It's, uh, and I'm on, I'm Mary Kim Farkas on all platforms. I don't have a nickname and you know, like I'm this, that I am Mary Kim Farkas and I'm layers of things, right? So I do all these hats (laughs) and all these gear that I wear. Um, Today I'm just taking off my scuba gear, but. (laughs) Um, So all you could, you meet me, um, meet, marykim.com is my digital card and you can link on that click on that and see up any other podcasts or summits i've been part of you can um follow me on all the social platforms that are there like on tiktok i think clubhouse facebook instagram linkedin all those things (laughs) become a member under the mom link um we're building a community of women female-owned businesses that want to start a business grow their business and we connect collaborate and we're cashing in we're bringing we're building the biggest largest social platform globally not only as a way to connect to other female-owned businesses but a way to be like the largest female-owned businesses that people can buy so if you're looking forward to support women it's going to be the largest e-commerce site. Okay. Yeah. Everything I do, you can connect me on there. Oh, yeah. There we are. <laughs> there we go. So that's Thank Mary you, Kim. This is Mary Kim's 10K card. I have a 10K card. 
If you want a digital business card, definitely reach out to Mary Kim or your brother LP because we can tell you how to do that. You can get a seven-day free sample card. Doesn't cost you anything. The, the, the digital business card, if you look on here, it shows your name, your titles. It has all your social media links. There are different tiers that you can pay for that will give you additional options to have on your card. You don't have to worry about buying paper cards. You can still buy them if you want, but some people still utilize them. But it just is a, a more professional way to give somebody your information real quick. You don't have to carry around a bunch of cards. If there's a typo on it, you got to get new cards printed out and all this shit or whatever. So we don't deal with all this stuff. It's all digital. Everything's all nice and neat. Boom, bam, boom, bam. It's good to go. Mary Kim, we're going to have your digital business card as well as meetmarykim.com listed in the show notes. So if you want to get in touch with Mary Kim, she's available. She's on Clubhouse or in Clubhouse also. What's the name of the room that you host with Kiki Boyd? Yeah, we host two um, resiliency and recovery rooms. We host them on Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern under the Real Moms Club. Okay. And then we host one on Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern, under the Mentors in Motion Club. But if you follow me, I do post it, um, yeah, on my Instagram. And then if you on Clubhouse, follow me as well, and you'll know the rooms that I open up on. But I got to, you know, say, like, that digital card, that is the way of the future. We are global. Like, if you're right. in the social world, it's global. And you could just send it digitally. We're not yeah. shipping paper business cards people so like it is you so know, great it's like level up it's worth it that's what i'm going to say <laughs> it has a qr code on there so all you got to do is like if i meet you somewhere and i want to get your information hey pull out my phone pull out yours i can save it to my home screen yes i take uh open my camera up scan the qr code bam it basically airdrops it to your phone yes. whether you got android or apple um there's all kind of things that are built into this 10k card however we're going to just say that it's a great investment for you i want to thank mary kim farkas for joining us here on the trigger one and talk podcast one of my favorite people in the whole wide world can't wait to meet you in person i'm hopefully going to be coming to new york before the end of the year so if i get up there i definitely will link up with you and let you know ahead of time the million dollar mom the mom link million dollar club how yes. do they get in touch with you on that is that on the mary kim site also? yes no actually go through my instagram i have the link in my instagram bio Okay. And to learn more or just DM me on Instagram, me private message me um, on, and I can fill you more in. It is the way of the future. Okay, cool. I'll have all yeah. that stuff listed in the show notes. Mary Kim, thank you, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Trigger Want to Talk podcast. We got to, I got to have you come back. You Definitely. Have you come thank you, Larry. This has been great. I appreciate what you're doing. You're changing this world with your platform. So I'm just happy to have a small part of it and I will support you any way I can. Yeah. Thank you for not, having me again. I'm not trying to <laughs> reinvent the wheel. I'm just trying to make this ride smoother. 
And like my, my favorite artist, Prince says in his song, Let's Go Crazy, Dearly Beloved, we're gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Amen. How <laughs> like, who knew? Amazing. That's it. That's it. Mary Kim, thank you so much. I'm going to be talking Larry. to you later on. This podcast, again, will be streamed on video and audio across all major platforms. It'll probably come out in August. Uh, it's June 22nd now, but it definitely will, will, will be coming out probably less than a month and a half. You know, so Yay, definitely so be looking for that. Mary Kim, I want you to have a great day. Hug your son. Hug your family, <laughs> hug yourself, go get your shoes on and go outside and just explore the world and have fun, okay? Yes, I will. You too, Larry. Have a great day. Thank you um, for this day. See you Talk in these clubhouse streets. Yes, see you in the streets. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. All right, folks, that's Mary Kim Farkas. Like I said, she is just a treasure and she has a bevy of knowledge and just is a great human being. Definitely check her out. If you want information about shoes, she's a person to talk to also. So I just want to throw that out there. We're going to end the show as we normally do with a missing person case. Of course, 99% of them are a black or brown man, woman, or child that we're going to talk about here. So I want to switch over my screen to the picture in picture that we're going to talk about. This young lady, her name is Akia Eggleston. Akia Eggleston. She's been missing since 2017. Let's take a listen. In the case of a missing pregnant woman from Baltimore. The announcement from prosecutors of the disappearance of Akia Eggleston. Hello, everybody. I'm Denise Coe. And I'm Vic Carter. We want to welcome all of those of you who are streaming this afternoon. Nearly five years after Akia Eggleston vanished without a trace, Prosecutors announce an arrest in the case. So this is a story we have been following literally for years. And today, prosecutors announce that the suspect is the father of the unborn child. WJZ is live. Alva Durbinette is live downtown near the state's attorney's office. And she has more in a case that has left so many people in our region wondering. Have a joy. Denise and Vic, this is a cold case that garnered so much attention. A 22-year-old expected mom, eight months pregnant, really excited for her second child, but then she vanished just days before her baby shower. Well, earlier today, State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby announced that her ex-boyfriend has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder and the death of Akia Eggleston and her unborn baby. We do believe that he, he did it. He made her disappear. It's been a question Akia Eggleston's family wanted answers to since 2017. What happened to the 22-year-old who was eight months pregnant when she vanished? Today, law enforcement announced they have a murder suspect. They believe it was the boyfriend and father of her unborn child. Although it's taken nearly five years, we never let this case go. Police arrested Michael Robertson in Michigan on Tuesday. He moved there just months after Eggleston disappeared. Prosecutors say at the time Robertson had a relationship with Eggleston, he also had another girlfriend who was the mother of his kids. Court documents painted a picture of tension building in a love triangle, with possible fights popping up with Robertson and his other girlfriend when Akia posted a photo of her sonogram on Facebook. Investigators say they found evidence that Robertson tricked Akia into thinking that they move in together. She even bought money orders for a down payment. 
documents prosecutors filed showed she had doubts about him because he was, quote, in a relationship with at least one other woman. The state's attorney said phone data showed Robertson was with Akia Eggleston on the very last day she was alive. And court documents show his Google account had distinct searches regarding trash pickup, landfills, or dumpster pickup. The arrest comes nearly five years after Eggleston vanished just days before her baby shower. We used additional investigative techniques and we had a new sort of fresh set of eyes that looked at the evidence. Eggleston's body has not been found. The family has constantly pushed for answers and now they may be a step closer. We will continue to stand united as a family until the final judgment in this case has been rendered. Robertson is currently in Michigan. He had a court appearance yesterday and then he will be extradited to Maryland. If he's convicted on all of these counts, he could spend two life sentences in prison. Live tonight in downtown Baltimore, Abitroy Burnett for WJC. We're going to have all of the contact information. If you have any information about Akia Eggleston's whereabouts. We will have the link to this story posted in the show notes here. I just want to thank you all for joining the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. It's been a great pleasure, great interview as always. Again, we have uncensored conversations. We exchange information. We never do therapy on the show. We never will do therapy on the show. And we have tons of resources. Again, I am your host, LP. I want to thank you all so, so much. And I want to let you all know that anytime that anyone wants to come on the show, please contact us. Go to our website, pentonpending.com. You can contact me at lp10k.com. That's my digital business card. We have an email address that you can send us questions, comments, concerns or what have you it's trigger warning talk podcast at gmail.com again trigger warning talk podcast at gmail.com i will leave you with this live in awareness don't live in fear seek help lpl